Welcome to Mary Liar Talks, a podcast that discusses mental health and spiritual well-being. Before we jump in, there may be episodes that are particularly sensitive for some listeners. And if that applies, then I hope you'll be able to join me whenever you feel ready and able. Today's episode is on psychosis, and my guest is Dr. Keith Gaynor. Keith is an assistant professor at University College Dublin and a senior clinical psychologist. He explains how adverse events can link to psychosis and how we can support someone who's dealing with such challenges. Let's go and chat with him. Thanks for joining me, Keith. Thanks, Mary Lyle. It's great to be here. So, Keith, you know a lot about psychosis. And when I think of psychosis, I think of a very serious mental health condition. So help us out and just give us a breakdown in terms of telling us what psychosis is. Absolutely. So psychosis is really interesting. And on the one hand, it's a, you're exactly right. It is a very serious mental health condition. But also what I think most people will learn and hopefully learn a bit from the podcast is that we can all have little experiences through our lives where we have little blips of psychosis. Okay. So even though we mightn't experience the full condition or right. mightn't have the illness, we actually will have had little experiences that mean we can understand what that might like be like for somebody else. Okay. who has a full-blown condition. So how would you describe the condition itself? So what are like the signs, the symptoms? What does it mean? So psychosis is where we become detached from reality. Okay. So that we're experiencing reality in a way that no one else in the world is. And so mm-hmm. typically that is people who might hear voices that aren't there. Mm-hmm. So they'll hear noises or sounds or people talking to them, but there's nobody present. Mm-hmm. Or they'd see things that aren't there. Or they'll have beliefs that are untrue, but they'll hold them really fixedly. So they might believe that their neighbours are out to get them or the CIA is bugging their phone or, you know, that there's something very paranoid kind of beliefs or very grandiose beliefs that they're Jesus or, you know, that they're that they're reincarnated you know, from somebody who's very special. Is there anything that makes them latch on to those certain beliefs or thinkings? Is there some triggers? Yeah, or absolutely. And so what we'd often find is actually the triggers have been building up for years. So okay. the, one of the things know is that about four percent of the population will have a psychotic illness so in their lifetime in their lifetime yeah so if you think of the population of london eight million people you're going to have hundreds of thousands of people who have a psychosis so it's unusual but not that unusual and so you know it's a relatively common but very serious disorder but the most extraordinary kind of thing has happened that over the last 30 years is that that kind of four percent figure all came from people coming to clinics or doctors or so on but actually when people went out and knocked on doors and did surveys they found that between 20 and 30% of people might have had these experiences, but not been affected by them, not found them upsetting, not found they were able to go to work, have relationships, get married, do all the normal things. But in the background, they were also experiencing some unusual things and they just integrated as part of their life. And so we have this really interesting idea of, well, what makes an illness? So we might say, okay, oh, hearing a voice, well, that seems very strange. But actually, if it's a part of my life and I integrate it and I'm able to do all the normal things and see my friends and go to the movies and go to work actually maybe that isn't an illness maybe that's just an unusual experience right i mean that's a good point so then what makes let's just call it a psychotic experience what makes it serious and what makes it not so when would you say it's severe and actually it requires treatment help external support yeah so there's a a great model out there at the moment a kind of a, a newer model so if we thought in the past it was illness or not ill and we kind of people fell into those two camps we were well 
well or not, you know, not well. And the Dutch and lots of very good researchers in, in London have been saying there's a proneness, persistence and impairment. Most of us can be prone where we have little blips where we have a little experience of a psychosis or unusual belief. And I'll give you an example. I have a shared office with a colleague, another psychologist, and we're tapping away at our computers. And uh, certainly Ireland, and I don't know how the NHS is, but we have old computers. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and they're very likely to break down. And she was doing a big report and it was took, took her all week to write it. And just as she was about to press save on us, the computer crashes. Oh dear. Goes again, types the whole thing, goes again, just as it's about to be done, the computer crashes again and it's all wiped. Mm. And the first thought out of her mouth was that, oh, IT are trying to delete it. And of course, they, were, they weren't. Oh, okay. <laughs> we just have old computers. But just for just that one moment, there was a little paranoid thought, a little blip. Okay. That actually, this isn't a coincidence or an accident. Actually, there's some sort of little conspiracy behind it. Well, okay. That's a good explanation, actually, in terms of what you mean by people generally can have a, yeah. maybe a bit of a... Just a little blip for a moment. Sure. And so we can have a little moment where we jump to a conclusion or we make a link that isn't there or we see someone is out to harm us or talk behind our back or gossip about us or actually they're not thinking about us at all. Yeah. And of course, if that is happening all the time and we're going, that's happening with all our friends every time we come to work, then you start to see actually this is persisting. This isn't just a one-off little moment. This is happening every day. Well, that's much more serious. That's much more likely to affect how happy we are in our life, yeah. how comfortable we are seeing our friends going to work. And then if we start to get distressed or we have a drop in functioning, we're not able to go to work. We decide, actually, I'm staying at home. Actually, I don't trust the people in work. So I'm not going to put myself there. And then it starts to really impact our life. And that's typically when we define, okay, this is an illness and this person might need some support. As you were talking, I was even thinking about how broad then it can mm. be. So for example, I can imagine someone who is very, very sensitive. Let's just say they're mm. suffering from anxiety yeah. and therefore they are hypersensitive to people's reactions, how they're interacting with people just because of how vulnerable mm. they feel. And I, so I guess you're, what you're saying is that comes under that broad umbrella. It just might not necessarily be seen as or considered to be serious enough. That's it. Yeah. When that anxiety right. just stretches into a little bit into paranoia. Right. Now, we can all get a little bit paranoid sometimes. Right. Then actually we're on, we've moved out of anxiety or now into what we'd call the psychosis continuum. Right. Okay. And are there particular triggers? What can cause psychosis then? Yeah. Sure. So there's lots and lots of, so there's lots of good evidence okay. and lots of causes. So there's a whole range of social factors. And mm -hmm. so if we've experienced trauma or adverse events in our life, yeah. if we've experienced discrimination, or hate or bullying or having been victimized in any way. Uh, if we're a minority, uh, second generation migrants to a country, all of those social factors are linked to psychosis. And if you think of why, if we have early experiences of threat in our life and we, we've real experience of threat and being threatened, then it doesn't take very much for that to get extended to, okay, well, I'm expecting threat. I'm expecting danger, even when it's not there. So if I think if people have been out to get me in my past, then it's not a huge jump to think, well, the next person might be out to get me or the neighbours are out to get me or people actually aren't but we start misinterpreting a look a sign things that are happening to us uh, as something that there's something behind it 
but we have very good reasons in our past for why that might be the case. Okay, get so it. those are all so the, social the social kind of factors. Right. Yeah, there are a lot of biological factors. So okay. genetics is important. So if, if if I have an identical twin with psychosis, I have a fifty percent likelihood that I'll also have a psychosis, which doesn't mean it's determined by genetics. I have a fifty percent chance that I won't be, but you know, but it definitely has plays an impact. Things like drug use, mm-hmm. things you know, like all those kind of it's if we're taking yeah, well. Right. <laughs> We would see a lot of cannabis, yeah. but also any of the kind of heavier drugs as well. Mm-hmm. But we would find because cannabis would be the most common one and uh, most commonly used drug in Ireland, we would have a lot of people who'd have cannabis-induced psychosis. And again, it's not unusual for people to have a paranoia or a paranoid episode on cannabis. And then actually it extends and it extends and it extends. And if someone who's slightly vulnerable, who has had difficult experiences in their past, or is using the cannabis to medicate away some of the anxiety mm-hmm. or some of the things that have happened, yeah, yeah. people often use cannabis in that way, actually it's very easy for that to build up uh, for some people. Okay, so those are the triggers, those yeah. are what can cause Perfect. it, yeah. different types of causes from what you've from what yeah. you've said. Um, I would imagine that if for someone experiencing it, it could be pretty scary, yeah. um, especially the serious side when we're talking about mm. it being actually uh, an illness. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Where um, people are telling you that that's what you're feeling, what you are seeing, what you're hearing is not actually true. Yeah. So how does someone in, who who's going through that, how do they get that help and support? So I think that there's kind of two pieces. One is kind of all the formal services. So actually going to your GP and, and talking to your GP and, you know, there'll be lots of psychological services, psychiatric services who actually do this work all the time, help people. And, and the, the interesting thing about someone with a psychosis, they might believe something that really is clearly untrue, but it's not going to shift by just saying that's not true. You're wrong mm-hmm. by getting into a row about it. So for family, and friends, it's about walking alongside them. It's supporting all the things that are doing that are helpful and good and positive parts of their life and not necessarily getting into a row about the, the other piece, but then supporting them to kind of seek help and gain help through services. But a key part, one of the key factors that makes it worse is isolation. People pull away. Well, you don't believe me. Well, I'm not going to you know, meet you for coffee. And of course, we as friends, we don't know what to do. This is really unusual for us. Yeah. If your really best friend starts saying really unusual things, you go, well, do I call or do I not call? So there's a really key bit for us to go actually this is when people need friends the most this is when the family needs friends the you know the most and that actually we can do a huge amount just by hanging out just by being present and supporting them yeah and encouraging them to get the help that they that that's they it need. and if they're not going to get the help that's okay we can sit there and we can talk about the movies and the football and the oh, weather yeah. and anything else yeah. we can stay a friend for them because mm-hmm. isolation is, the, is a real problem here so if you think that if you're frightened and your thoughts are really frightening or you're hearing voices that are really frightening. Can you imagine what it's like to be alone? Yeah. And actually it's very easy to get, you know, disconnected from reality because you've spent the whole time in your bedroom or your whole time on the internet. And actually just to have someone who'll sit there and talk football with you. <laughs> Here's a bit of reality, you know. <laughs> what do you think about Tottenham? How are they doing? <laughs> and you're 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 there and you just stay as a presence, as part of reality for them. And if everyone disappears, all the friends and the colleagues and the family because they don't know how to deal with the psychosis, then all those aspects of reality disappear as well because the person doesn't have access to them. Sure. Okay. And and in terms of what I would call medical intervention, mm, yeah. what does that look like? So there's a whole range of effective medications uh, for psychosis. They work mm. really well. They work for about 70% of people. They have some 
difficult side effects sometimes. So people will often have to kind of have a, a, an ongoing conversation with their prescriber about, okay, if this is working on the one hand, on the other hand, it's impacting me in, in you know, in these mm. ways, what's the right dose and what's the t- right type of medication? And when you said like side effects, are we talking about gaining weight? I think I've heard those kind of things. So Yeah, so different mm. medications have different side effects and then they mm. affect individuals differently mm. based on our own metabolism and things. But mm. some of them would have can have weight gain, some of them can have sexual dysfunction side effects mm. and things like that. People can be a little bit drowsy on them, but actually it's very much depends on the person. And then actually if it's something that's impacting someone in a way that it really you know isn't helpful, the worst thing they can do is just stop. Say, okay, well I'm not taking that anymore. Mm. And actually most consultants be really happy. You come back and go, look, actually this one I'm really finding the weight gain really difficult. Mm. What can we do about that? And the, typically a consultant will come up with a good answer. They will find a dose that works or a medication that works for people. Sure. So okay, the key is is to keep talking and keep sharing that anxiety, what's putting them off perhaps for them taking medication that exactly. could be effective for them. Yeah. And there are lots and lots of other routes, which there mightn't have been 25 and 30 years ago. Mm. Actually, and medications kind of, have come on a long way. Sure. Apart from medication, what other kind of routes are there? Well, I'm a psychologist, so I yeah. do, 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 do lots of talking. And yeah. so I, I work I work half time in a university and I work half time in a psychosis clinic. So everyone I see has a psychosis. And a, a key part of this is actually sitting and talking. And often the per- person's experiences are really frightening. The people in their life don't necessarily know what to do with that. If someone comes in mm-hmm. and says, you know, God has been talking to me and he's sending me messages through the TV, your mum and dad don't necessarily know how to manage that. Mm-hmm. But actually a key part of kind of helping someone is, okay, let's chat about that. Right. How does that yeah. make you feel? What's going on when that's happening? Does that happen when you're stressed? You know, does that happen when you're happy? What's going on around that? And then allowing someone kind of the same breathing space to talk through those things as you would talk about anything else. We don't have mm-hmm. to hide this away I and mean, it to be stigmatized even inside of us, which it often is. And so you'll talk about voices, we'll talk about beliefs, we'll talk about experiences. I'm interested, when you say you'll talk about these kind of things, would you, is it more a listening role or is it a, is it a, a dialogue between you and the individual? Oh, definitely a dialogue, a dialogue. yeah. You try and have as real a conversation as you yeah. can. And there's a key bit here of, you know, there's a kind of a line that you're not endorsing the beliefs necessarily, but you're not necessarily mm-hmm. fighting them either. Right. You're getting the person to think them through. And is there any other way of understanding why they might have those beliefs or have those experiences? Mm-hmm. And often when you help the person put it in the context of their lives, we'd often go back through all of the person's experiences of threat right. in their life. They might be able to say, oh, actually, this is really like the, those things I experienced when I was a teenager. I really like those things I experienced when I was a kid. Okay. And they're coming up for you again, but they're coming up in this new way. And by able to helping the person make those links, it, they're often then able to kind of challenge the idea themselves. Right, okay. So it's a form of enabling the person to identify roots to that have led to their condition. Exactly. And then the, the other half of it is, okay, well, how do I cope with it now? It's frightening and scary and this thing is happening to me at midnight. Okay, what do I do then? And so we do lots of meditation, we do lots of breathing, we do lots of work on the body. So people are able to soothe their own bodies because often 
you know, when you have a, a symptom, a psychotic symptom, it's very frightening. It's kind of panicky. Yes, yeah, yeah. So all the things that work for panic are really helpful. All the things that work for distress are really helpful. And so all the kind of tools that you'd be using for every other aspect of psychology, anxiety and depression and, and, and distress are useful here. So Keith, like you've been doing this for many years <laughs> and your interest and your passion comes through. So what actually led you to specialise in psychosis? Well, it's, it's a long time ago. So I started working psychosis in 2007 uh, as a researcher. And so so my background is psychology, but really psychosis was seen as a medical only approach until about the mid 90s. And it was key people in London who kind of said, no, actually, psychology is a really important role here. So it's only kind of from the mid 90s that that started to come through. And so in 2007, it was a really exciting time to be a psychologist in psychosis. And I was part of a big, uh, I was a researcher in a big research trial going, okay, actually, what would be good psychological inventions? What works? Psychosis. And so got lovely opportunities then to meet people with psychosis and to sit down and chat and to hear their stories, just kind of learn from them. And that kind of got kind of very passionate from that point. And, and so in terms of the research that you've done or been part yeah. of, what would you say are key interesting findings? So I, I suppose is a, a, a key kind of part what would be a piece of research I did in London, which met people who had very unusual experiences. So saw things that weren't there, heard things that weren't there or had very unusual beliefs, but who had no illness aspect to them. They might hear these things every day. They might, you know, see things every day, but actually they were still working as a bank manager and still working as a primary school teacher and still okay, in, okay. you know, getting, being married and everything. And basically it didn't affect their Didn't affect the rest life. of their lives. Right. Okay. What were the factors that allowed them to do that? And so there was a couple of things. It was how easy and difficult their early life was in some ways, but the key part of it was the kind of social support they had now. And those people often existed in a social setting that supported those beliefs in some way, okay. that allowed them to be a little bit quirky or allowed them to have, you know, slightly unusual experiences and didn't stigmatize them or alienate them or isolate them. And so sometimes those people would have been part of spiritualist groups or might have been part of, so if you believe in UFOs, that's fine, but it's much nicer if you believe it in a group of people who believe in UFOs. And actually then everyone endorses it and you don't feel alone with that. So those were the ones from your research that seemed to cope better. Yeah. Um, and so that gives a, an obligation to all of the rest of us is how can we reach out and support people who might be having difficult experiences or unusual experiences rather than, you know, us expanding our idea of what normal is. So we can embrace a much wider perspective. Okay. And is there anything else from your research that you think, oh, that was a really interesting one? I think that the key changes in the last couple of years, and a lot of my research at the moment is about what sort of trauma, it's in the last 10 years that we really know that trauma is a key driver of psychosis. So the trauma you experience in early life is a key reason why you might go on and have psychosis in your 20s or 30s. And that also thinking about, well, what type of trauma? And so obviously, initially, all that research focused on, you know, kind of big traumas or big single incidents of trauma. And one of the things we're learning is actually small but repetitive incidents of trauma are really important. So like being bullied in school. And that mightn't be the, you mightn't have been, you know, been shot or attacked, but actually if it was every day you were being excluded and picked on and victimized, that that's really important. And that plays out in lots of ways then later on in someone's life. 
And you have a book called yeah, Protecting, Protecting Mental, mental health. health. Yeah, and that explores how individuals can nurture positive mental health and also reduce negative emotions like anxiety and depression. Are you able to leave us with some tips and advice, please, from your book? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, and if, and if COVID taught us anything, is that we can't do this on our own. Mm. So we often think about psychology as something that happens inside of us. But I think it would be much better if we thought about psychology as, okay, how do I join with somebody beside me? How do I connect with somebody beside me? And that one of the real difficulties in the modern world is we are disconnected. We might be connecting through phones, but what we're not doing is just meeting someone and going for a walk or going for a coffee or just chatting like we would have at the, you know, the, the school gates. Yeah. And that the best thing we can do for our health is go and meet someone face to face and actually just be with someone else for a period of time. And that's Get about the healthiest thing. We, yeah. Spend quality time. Yeah, with people. Are there any other tips or advice that you would give to maybe someone who's experienced psychotic um, episodes in the past or currently? Is there anything yeah. you want to leave? Well, them? I think that uh, the, I really believe that psychology has a really useful role in psychosis. And I think lots of people in services, you know, psychology can be difficult to access and it can be kind of restricted how many sessions you get and things like that and that actually if you have any chance of engaging in any kind of form of kind of talking therapy that it's likely to be helpful right. so i really encourage people to come back around again and to try and find as many routes as possible to talk about what's been going on for them and lastly anything else you would want to share for those who are like a close relative family friend maybe spouse of someone who who has those experiences. Yeah, and, and this is an enormous experience for the family. Yeah. I think this is that often we think about the person with the illness as, as the, that they're having all the distress, but actually it impacts everyone in the family. Yeah. And so they need huge support. And yeah. so there are lots of very good mental health charities in the UK who do offer family support. And, uh, and I know through our service we do. And what people would tell us is it's when they meet other families and the light bulb goes, God, we're not the only people right. who are struggling yeah. with this. Like peer-to-peer kind of support exactly. or network. And that just kind of normalises kind of some of the difficulties and takes some of the stigma out of it. And that peer-to-peer -peer support is everything, I think, for families. It's really, really helpful. Brilliant. All right. Well, on that note then, Keith, I just want to thank you, really. Thank you for joining me on Mary Lyer Talks and sharing some of your experiences, some of what you found, that advice. And for those of you who are listening, um, please join me soon. Bye for now. Here's a spiritual wellness tip that you can meditate on. It's Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 to 2, and it reads, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The fires will not consume you. Thank you for listening. Do follow and join me again next time on Mary Lyre Talks Beyond the Smile.